What do you call that noise? What do you call that noise? It's always funny when Andy Partridge talks about his so-called failed songwriting career, but not all of his songs have slipped through the net. This month and next month on What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, we will be talking to two of Andy's collaborators about the co-written songs that didn't get away and that they are about to release. Hello, my name is Mark Fisher, and in this episode, I'm delighted to say we'll be talking to Steve Conti, the sometime New York Dolls guitar player whose song 4th of July, written with Andy, is due out around about the time you'll be hearing this. And next month, we'll be hearing from Chris Braid about the songs he's been writing with Andy. Before we get on with that, we've got some sad news to share about Ian C. Stewart, who many will remember as the man who compiled XDC fan tribute cassettes in the 1990s. Um, here's his friend Rhubarb to tell us what happened. Hello, Mark, Mark and David. Long time listener, first time message. My name is Rhubarb. I started listening to What Do You Call That Noise right around or just after you began podcasting. I was so chuffed when within your first seven minutes of your first episode, you name dropped my longtime pen friend Ian C. Stewart for his fan compilations, Obscene Collection, Beasts I've Seen, and Skylacking, and I've been a dedicated listener since. Ian would have met some of you and your listeners certainly during the Canadian conventions or through the Little Express and Limelight exchanges for either stuff or pen pal listings. He had a little more disposable income and a little more lenient parents back in the mid to late 80s than I did, so even in passing, you may have met him personally, if not just in the post. Just thought I would update anyone that he had dropped off on or who enjoyed his work. Uh, Saturday, the 3rd of June, 2023, Ian shuffled off the earth after fighting with Huntington's disease for probably 20 years. It's a nasty one. In super layman's terms, it's like ALS plus dementia, but unlike Alzheimer's, the person is trapped inside their head while their body forgets how to do things, and they know that they are not themselves, and it is super frustrating for them. It's not a great way to go. Please donate to this underknown disease. It's not just the big name dementia, Alzheimer's. Uh, all of the dementias need to be eradicated also. Alzheimer's is hard on the family and loved ones. Huntington's is hard on the human themselves. Back to the story, though. Ian had sworn off all music, even listening to it, when he realized he could no longer make music. That was about 10 years ago, and he pushed the people who he communicated with away. I postulate so they didn't have to remember him in the midst of Huntington's. They would only remember him as we were all in our 20s. Luckily, I don't listen, and I kept coming back, just like a few key in-towners who monitored him while I was miles away, and they notified me to pack up and come to Ohio when the end became close. In happier and more pertinent news to this podcast, I was on the late afternoon and nighttime shift on Saturday. He was agitated and couldn't speak to tell me why, but it was clear he wasn't kicking me out for the night. So, with nothing better to do, no good ideas, I pulled up YouTube, hoping that perhaps music would be soothing. And I climbed back over to be close by him if he needed someone in arm's reach for any reason. Ian and I listened to XTC for a few hours before he decided it was time to move on. And the music of XTC... That had been absent for so long brought such a beautiful smile to his face and it allowed him the energy to focus for the time that we spent together alone just like we did when we were 15 year olds laying around listening to music writing letters back and forth and being deep and honest because we had one band in common that we were passionate about and that allowed two people to connect in a deep and meaningful way. He transitioned to the next phase quickly, in complete peace. I am blaming XTC for this beautiful moment, and I wanted to share that. any rate, thank you for name-dropping Ian. Thank you for podcasting. Thanks to the lads from Swindon and those that worked with them to make XTC and the fandom happen. Love to anyone who wondered where Ian got to. Sorry for the surprise, but now you have a little more closure. 
and a personal note to anyone out there listening. Ian's fan compilations are at archive.com. Search for Bizarre Depiction, all one word, or Ian C. Stewart, all one word, uh, I-A-N-C-S-T-E-W-A-R-T. Or if you own a physical copy, copy them for each other, mixtape style, like we used to do in ye good old days of using the postie to connect. But don't pay for the albums anymore. I'm not sure that bank account even exists, so you'd just be giving Dosh to some mega bank somewhere. Keep your ducats in this case, but share the work. Gents, I continue to listen to your wonderful podcast and share in the love of XTC, where all of us bonded, even if we never met. Anyone in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and surrounding, I will see you at the yearly concert at the Turf Club. And I'll see the rest of you in Swindon one day. With friendship, Rhubarb. Or you can call me Ruby. That's very sad. Uh, thanks very much for letting us all know about that, Rhubarb. Um, in those pre-internet days, it was people like Ian who helped keep the XTC community together, so he really is a big loss, even more so after such a cruel disease. As Ruby says, you can hear those fan compilation tapes by searching for Ian C. Stewart at archive.org. Now, let's move on to our regular feature in which you, the listeners, entertain us with your XTC-inspired songs. Since the start of the year, we've heard wonderful songs from John Bicknell, Warren Butson, Christopher Underwood, Jeff Nicholson, Joel Bell, Mark Sander, and Mario Rodriguez-Centeno. Now it's the turn of Don Kerr from the Toronto band Communism, who says two of his main major influences are Terry Chambers and Andy Partridge. Here he is to introduce Lookout. What do you call that noise? Hello, Mark. And everyone listening, this is Don Kerr from Toronto, Canada, drummer and songwriter of the band Communism. We have two albums out with plenty of XTC influences. I love their early period the most, when Terry was in the band, so much more raw, driving teamwork than on the later, more lush albums. My song Lookout is from our first album, recorded with my friends Kevin and Paul, with no overdubs, just three instruments, three voices. It's a bit like Rick Springfield's Jesse's Girl, but with its mullet set on fire. I hope you like it. I even sneak a certain band name into the third verse. Look out, look out, look out!
What do you call that noise? Fantastic. Thanks very much for that, Don Kerr. If you'd like to hear more from Don and communism, there is a band camp page, which I'll include in the podcast information, uh, but uh, I'll just speak it out. It's communism1.bandcamp.com. Um, and you can also get that song and other music on all the streaming services. If you are a musician and you've written something inspired by XTC in some way, I'd love to hear from you. Your music doesn't necessarily have to sound like XTC, but perhaps it has some lyrical, thematic, rhythmic or melodic connection. If you've got something that fits the bill, please get in touch with me at mark at xtclimelight.com. My monthly shout out uh, to the very wonderful supporters on Patreon, whose donations keep the XTC podcast running, is always an important part of the show. And it would be great if you would like to join them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher and decide whether you'd like to be a pink thing, a humble daisy or a knight in shining karma. And if it's the latter, I'll read out your name at the end of each episode. And if you have an appetite for even more XTC, and why wouldn't you? Remember, you can buy your copy of What Do You Call That Noise? An XTC Discovery Book at uh, xtclimelight.com. And actually, both Steve Conti and Chris Braid are contributors to that book. So that's yet another reason for buying it. What do you call that noise? My guest this month is Steve Conti, a musician who has turned his hand to punk, funk, rock and roll, soul, jazz, blues, country and folk. We'll be here all day if I try to list everything he's done. So let's just say his bands have included Hudson River Rats, Company of Wolves, Clown Jewels, the New York Dolls, the Michael Monroe Band, the Conti Brothers, Steve Conti and the Crazy Truth and Steve Conti NYC. He has played live with Chuck Berry and Alice Cooper, Cindy Lauper, Carol King, Eric Bird and Les Paul and many, many more. And he was a stand-in vocalist for Paul Simon. And if you check out his website, which is at stevecontimusic.com, you'll see credits for 50 albums. I counted them and I bet that's not even all of them. And uh, on top of that, Steve is also a massive XDC fan, which is one reason why he's here. And in What Do You Call That Noise? An XDC Discovery book, he talked eloquently about Take This Town, No Thugs in Our House, and It's Nearly Africa. So hello, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mark. Nice to have you. It's it's early here in New York, so uh, <clears throat> I hope I sound okay. Yeah, it's a very unrock and roll hour that I've that I've insisted that Steve wakes up this morning, and that's very very cruel of me. Um, but that's great news that you're working with Andy Partridge. Yes, it's uh, it's been wow, it's been such an experience, man. It's uh, you know, for me, top ten songwriters of all time. You know, it's John and Paul, it's Mick and Keith, it's Pete Townsend, it's Tom Waits, Paul Westerberg, it's Andy Partridge, it's I can't think of who else, but I mean, he, he's right in there. So it's like writing with one of my heroes. It was not only like writing with one of my heroes, it was writing with one of my heroes. It was, yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about that in a minute. First, let's just hear a little bit of Andy talking about the collaboration with you to see his perspective on it. What do you call that noise? Why do you call that noise? He was like their, their Johnny Thunders uh, replacement type character. We need this person in the band, and who do we? Oh, Steve Conti, yeah, perfect for it. it weirdly, it was always the role I thought I was born to play. <laughs> you know, when, when in the early seventies, I, I've, I'm sure I've told you, I, I actually wrote a letter uh, that I didn't send, but I wrote a letter meaning to send it to the New York Dolls, saying that my services are on offer. You know, should uh, should they need a guitarist and uh, this was at the point where the Helium kids were were at their height or depth, <laughs> rather, their nadir of non-success. Um, but I didn't have the guts to send it. But uh, I did have my I did have my my nom de guitar worked out, which was going to be Lord Andrew English. Um, <laughs> she's particularly crap. <laughs> uh, but no, Steve Conte kind of got that role when when Johnny Thunders left us. And then for you to find out that Steve Conte was an XDC fan as well as being in the New York Dolls, that sounds like too good to be true, doesn't it? Yeah, that was unusual. So I get to I get to pick uh, Steve Conte's um, brains about working with because uh, the New York Dolls work with Todd. So I get to 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 pick his brains on all that sort of thing, just to know that I'm not crazy. <laughs> um, uh, so you know what was that like, Steve? Tell me all about this, this, and this. You know, 
we, we, we kept in contact over the years. And, and then he asked me, you know, I, I'm doing an album for Steve Van Zandt's label. And I'd love you to, to write some songs with me. So it was just a case of he asked. And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, were you channeling your inner New York Dolls fan? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was strange to kind of jump to a place where I'd come through on the journey, you know, well, I'm going to take you back way back in the machine to, uh, it was like getting in the TARDIS, you know, and, climbing out in Elizabethan England. Oh, yeah, I really wanted to wear all this gear and play the lute at one time, you know. So that was, it, was, it was good fun. And I think we've come up with some, some pretty solid things as well. So you'll hear them. You'll hear my Lord Andrew English head <laughs> has come up with. Yeah, he's got a good little band, and he's, he's actually he's got Prairie Prince drumming on a lot of the numbers, which is uh, another strange dislocation for me. It was nice to look back in a TARDIS to a to a time like a, an alternate choice of path I could have made, you know, because I did get asked at one point, not quite the same thing, but I did get asked to join the Pat Travers band. And you, you t oh, clearly you turned it down. <laughs> well, clearly I turned it down, but I thought, no, XTC is really starting to, to click now. And, you know, I, I can't abandon my lads. So that was pretty early on then, that, that Yeah, that's 77. Uh -huh. uh, Pat Travers was in London and he came to a, a London pub gig we did and uh, came back to the, the dressing room, <laughs> uh, the beer cellar, <laughs> where we were taking our trousers off, you know, came back afterwards and it was a case of, uh, you guys are fantastic and Andy, your guitar playing is just what I need. I, I want to ask you to join my band, you know, and. I thought no, it's I, I I wouldn't I I can't do it I I'm I I got to be loyal to my lads you know we were a gang I couldn't leave my gang and just one more thing about Steve Conte what what was the nature of your collaboration was it you know were you writing complete songs or was he was it sort of back and forth between the two of you? Well, it was a bit of both yeah we'd have these Zoom sessions where we'd sit with a, a, a guitar on our laps you know and try stuff out or he'd say i really fancy writing something that's a little bit like this or this and you know we'd, we'd fire ideas backwards and forwards or he would say i've got this idea i'm going to send you which is just an idea for a for a chorus but i have no idea where to go with a verse for it and how to build up to this and and then i'd i'd fire back ideas at him so you know everything was built pretty much 50 50 but it's what he needs. I don't want to say to him, oh, no, you, you must start using chords more like, you know, knowing that's not his thing. It's very much what he wanted. And if he didn't like my suggestions, they didn't get done, you know. That was Andy Bodgish talking about working with Steve Conte, who's, who's my guest today. And Steve, we're doing this just about to coincide with the, with the release of the first of the songs that you've written with Andy, which I've been playing all this morning. Thank you very much for sending me. And that's called 4th of July. And uh, a number of things to be said about it that are of interest to XTC fans. Not only is it a collaboration with uh, Andy Partridge, but also you've got Prairie Prince on drums, which has a nice uh, XTC yes. pedigree. And that's coming out not on the 4th of July, the 30th of June, I think, isn't it? Um, or uh, whatever yes. the dates. And it's on Wicked Cool Records on 7-inch vinyl. The fact that it comes out on June 30th is uh, perfect timing because it'll be right here just in time for your 4th of July barbecues, yeah. your parties and Independence Day. But it has really has nothing to do with Independence Day or, or patriotism or America or anything like that. So just to be clear... You've done a number of songs with Andy and they're going to come out on an album, which we can find out in about in a minute. But uh, I'm fascinated by the nature of collaboration because it's by the sound of what Andy was just saying, actually, the uh, uh, there was a sort of mixture about who came up with music, who came out of who come up with the, the lyrics. So, you know, how did that side of the collaboration work, the, just the practicalities of it? For this uh, particular song for Fourth of July, uh, that was probably the sixth song we wrote together. We, we did a Zoom or a couple of Zoom sessions. And the first one, Andy brought me an idea. 
So I'm going to go back to the, the very first song and, and, and show how it went. He brought this idea. He said, I was thinking this is kind of like a, a Sid Barrett kind of riff. And he started playing this, and this guitar riff, and started singing something. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, we got four songs in the first meeting, which was amazing to me. Not completed or anything, but, you know, four germs of songs that then I went away and I did demos of. And I sent him the demos, and he commented, and then I revised and sent them back. And uh, so by the time we came to uh, writing 4th of July, it was during our second set of Zoom sessions. I think we did four of them. And I had said, uh, let's get a little more garagey. Let's put our Dukes of Stratosphere hats on. Because I'm on Little Steven's uh, uh, Wicked Cool Records label, and... He's got a, a radio station called the Little Stevens Underground Garage that plays the best of, you know, the 60s old school of soul, you know, Temptations and, and all that, and, and then British Invasion, psychedelic garage stuff, and like modern stuff. But it all kind of comes from that, you know, 66 or 64 through, I mean, they play 50 stuff too. So I said, let's make sure that we we write stuff that uh, we'll get some airplay. Because we were writing kind of, we got a little arty on a couple <laughs> of songs. And I thought, <laughs> I mean, I love it. You know, that's why I love XTC, you know. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe little Steven's not going to, you know, make this a single. So let's get a little simpler. And uh, so I had this hook for years, probably for 20 years, this 4th of July chorus. It was, there was one 4th of July, I was living in Manhattan. And I was literally running out the door to some 4th of July, maybe the fireworks or something. And, and I just started singing 4th of July in my head in that exact same rhythm and melody that you hear on the record. But I never got any further than the chorus. And I thought, this is a great chorus. I tried it with so many different bands and never got a verse that I liked. And so I said, this is the perfect opportunity. It's like a power pop kind of idea. Let me present it to Andy. And Andy just knew exactly where to go for the verse, like right away. And then he came up with that great guitar line. It sounds like a 12-string little melody thing. That was an instance of, you know, me having a melody, a lyric, and chords uh, to a hook. Andy finessed the the end of the, the hook a little bit lyrically. And then uh, we wrote the verses together lyrically. And, uh, you know, he kind of came up with that music. And chords for it, I finessed a few chords myself, but uh, it was a real collaboration. Yeah, and it's, it, that's what I was just thinking. It, it feels like it couldn't have happened. Neither one of you could have done it on your own. You know, it needed both of you to to do it. Yeah, and and what an honor, you know, to have this song that was kicking around for twenty years, going nowhere. That just Andy Partridge breathed life into. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, and what you're saying actually as well. I mean, that um, whole mixture of of, of influences and uh, going back to the 1960s and so on that that has affected you. It's also affected him. So I imagine you've got a strong, um, a lot to say from a musical point of view with it, to each other. Oh yeah, we we talk about the monkeys all the mm. time, and uh, you know the Beatles, of course. But uh, you know, I didn't realize how into the monkeys he Hugely, was. Yeah, and I yeah. was totally into the monkeys when I was a kid. I mean, he's a little older than me, so he was like probably songwriting age when the monkeys came out. I was still a little kid, like watching the TV show mm -hmm. and going, oh, they're like, they look pretty cool, you know? I like the monkey mobile. It's like the band mobile, but it's red. <laughs> monkeys, Beatles, you know, Beach Boys I love as well, which Andy loves, of course. And, uh, and from his point of view he talks about the opportunity of playing with you because of your new york dolls connection in particular uh that they were a formative influence on him as 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 a young aspiring musician and uh for him to be able to get uh because all that although it, it's it's true to say as i just did say that you've got a very broad musical pedigree your you you've had those years with the with the New York Dolls. I think the revived version of the New York Dolls from two thousand and four to two thousand and ten, um, and and your default position. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but your default position is kind of rock and roll, and and that's a sort of it's uh, maybe not the arty stuff that um, Andy sort of branched out to. So it's nice, I think, for him to be able to go back to fundamentals and 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 play a bit of dirty rock and roll. Yes, I mean Andy and I were 
aware of each other before I was in the Dolls because uh, my guitar repairman in New York was making a guitar for him. So I gave him, I, I said, oh my God, you're making a guitar for mm. India. This is Dennis Fano, yeah? Dennis Fano, yeah. I said, you, you have to give, please give Andy uh, my record. I had just done a record with my brother called Bleed Together, the Contis, we were using our last name. And it was a very arty record, rock and roll, but uh, had some cool production and weird, a lot of weirdness on it. I thought Andy would like this. And uh, I guess he did, but like, it's not like he came, you know, calling me up or anything, you know, congratulating me on it. But uh, I got word through Dennis that he really liked it. And it was really uh, through the Dolls connection that Andy and I started talking. But I guess he knew who I was already. And or we started chatting through Steve Lillywhite, producer, who's a became a friend of mine in like 2010 or so or nine. And we were chatting on Twitter one day and, and Steve roped Andy into the conversation when Andy was actually on Twitter doing the XTC fans. We started chatting and he was like, oh, you were in the dolls. And, you know, uh, I wanted to be in. And he told me the whole story, which he's probably told you. He wanted to... Um, you know, call himself, he wanted to write, or he did write David Johansson a fan letter and said, I want to be in your band. And, you know, I'm calling myself Lord Andrew English. <laughs> <laughs> and he had really long hair back then. And so, you know, we, we kind of started off our conversations, uh, you know, based on the dolls. And I thought, well, you know, not only was the dolls a great experience for me, you know, playing with a legendary New York rock and roll band when I live in New York, but, uh, it's also open doors like that. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is that as I, I read somewhere that you before you joined the Dolls, you weren't a particular, you hadn't been a particular New York Dolls fan. He was a bigger fan than you, than you ever were. Yeah, I, you know, when I was coming up, I wanted to be, you know, a good guitar player. You know, I listened to Jeff Beck and, you know, Jimmy Page and all those kind of guys at jazz. You know, garage rock was not something that was on my radar. In my CD collection, I had a Sex Pistols record. I had a Dolls record. I had, you know, but they just sat there, basically. You know, I didn't really like it. They weren't my go-to listening. You know, I'd rather listen to, you know, Todd Rundgren or Dealey Dan or this is like in my, you know, muso phase, you know, or Pat Metheny or, or something. You know, when I got the Dolls gig, I started listening to it. And, of course, then I got a real appreciation for, oh, wow, this, you know, I can see why people dig this, you know. Um, Johnny Thunders was, uh, you know, an animal. I definitely gained something by learning how to kind of leave a lot of stuff that I know out, even outside the door and, and just get raw and, and emotional. And, and that's what Thunders was, you know, so. Um, and was that difficult to do because the risk of, 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 I mean, this is the true of, of, because the history of rock and roll is, is getting as old as it is, that the idea of a band that was big in the 70s coming back, uh, what was it, 40 years yet, 30, 40 years later, uh, the risk is that everyone's a little bit too old and that all of that excitement that was around in the 70s is dissipated. But I was just looking at, um, there's, there's, there's a clip on YouTube of, of you doing personality crisis on the, on the Craig Ferguson show, and it's just so full of energy, even, you know, it, it, it shows up. But was it difficult to, or easy, I don't know, to get the... Um, to recreate that sort of energy on, on stage when you were with them? Not for me, and I don't think for anybody. I mean, Johansson was, you know, I never saw the band back in the day. And Sylvain was excited as a little kid. I love that guy and miss him dearly. Sylvain never grew up, really, kind of, which was a beautiful thing about him. He was still like a kid. He still talked about, you know, the kids. We got to do this for the kids. And, like, the kids are, like, 60 years old, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, David was a bit, you know, he had been through a lot of uh, different phases, his Buster Poindexter thing, his Harry Swiss, his acoustic blues, you know, he had beards, he had, uh, you know, he dressed down. He, like, the first thing I said was, so Dave, are we going to get in drag? And he's like, nah, 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 we're just going to dress like rock stars. I went, all right. That's, I was like, phew, because I wasn't looking forward to putting on pumps, you know. So, yeah, the energy just, it, it, the energy came from the music. And, you know, I had been playing up to that point, like I, the last gig I really had outside of my own bands, because, you know, I'm a New York freelance musician. You know, I work with whoever calls. And, and luckily, some great people have called me, Paul Simon and 
Billy Squire and Peter Wolf and these different people. So I've been playing, well, certainly not garage rock or punk or anything. Never really. But it reminded me of, you know, my youth because I was into that. I was I was reading Rock Scene magazine. Do you guys know that magazine over there? I don't know Rock Scene, though. It was like really, it came out of like the Matches Kansas City, um, Greek Gildersleeves, Mud Club, you know, the whole like late 70s tracks, uh, this era of clubs where uh, the dolls were already broken up, but it was like, you know, the Heartbreakers and, uh, you know, all these sort of glam late 70s bands hanging out and I, I was a kid like living in New Jersey then I would like read these pages and drool like oh god if I could just go in there and you know hang out with these people that was too young but it reminded me you know when I was 15 16 you know I had a band where we put makeup on and you know wore my mom's clothes you know <laughs> and uh and so you know it was like getting back to that again it was like excitement and uh you know my first bands were yeah it was like as I was wearing my mom's boots and belly shirts and you know, we were playing all the stuff from Get Your Yayas Out. We were like a blues band, you know, glam blues band. So it was kind of a logical thing to go back to. And it just reminded me of my youth again. And were you aware of the sort of responsibility? Because there are so many people, uh, Morrissey being an obvious example, but Andy, Andy as well, that uh, who are hugely influenced by the um, New York Dolls and and. and those you know famous people as well as just ordinary people so did you feel a sort of responsibility to keep that um to be truthful faithful to them i mean i kind of treat it like i do any gig that i do like when i get in there i really uh, uh listen to the records and soak up the essence of the guy i'm replacing or adding to did the first couple of years of the dolls was we just played the, the best of those albums and i pretty much learned Thunder's stuff. I inserted some of myself where I could, but there wasn't a whole lot of room for it, uh, which was fine. Got into distilling, you know, my playing down to like just animalistic, you know, raw emotional stuff, not no jazz notes. So that was a challenge, and and uh, I I welcomed it. You know, of course, there were people that were like, oh, he's a Johnny wannabe. You know, I, I never was a Johnny Thunder's disciple. I got a big nose, I got big hair, I'm Italian, you know, what, what, I mean, there were similarities there, you know, and maybe that's why Johansson picked me, I don't know. I can't help the way that I look and that, that I was born. <laughs> the sound man, Night Bob, who was a legendary uh, uh, sound man for the Dolls back in the day, and he was mixing our live gigs when the band reformed. He said, you're in the hot seat, because, you know, there are Thunderous fans out there. I was like, ah, yeah, whatever. But... Yeah, I kind of found out there were there were some people that were uh, a bit negative, but most people thought that I brought uh, a good thing to the band, including the magazines and and write ups, which is most important actually, because uh, that kind of documents what happened. Yeah, great opportunity. And I'm thinking then back from from the early bands that you were in that, that as you were just describing them. Let's talk about how you first came across XTC because there's XTC do sort of straddle these different worlds, don't they? Of of being me because because they are so musically interesting and and so uh it w in a way it might have made sense if you'd have got into them with white music and go to the sort of punkier side of them but it was you got into them uh, i think at that point when they were still a tough tight working band but um were starting to breathe out a little bit yeah actually by the time i really got into them andy stopped touring yeah oddly enough i was just thinking about this this morning 77 the year that Punk broke in America anyway, and uh, or maybe it was 76 in England. But I think the first XTC white music came out in 77, maybe? I think it was just into 78, but the, I think the 3D EP came out. The very first thing came out in 77, so it was about that time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so in America, at that time, heavy metal, like Van Halen and punk, both came out. And I was fully into, like, guitar head music. I was into... Yeah, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Jeff Beck, and uh, Dealey Dan, and Utopia, and Rundgren, and and all that sort of musical stuff with beautiful chords, and and so like I missed the the punk thing initially. There were three bands during the punk era that I liked, only three: Pretenders, Police, and XTC. That was it for me. I hated rock for a few years. I had to just go like full. 
you know, blinders on into jazz and, and listen to Wes Montgomery and Pat Metheny and John Schofield and like all these jazz guys. So uh, I wasn't aware of the, the first couple of XTC albums, but when I went to college, I remember hearing Drums and Wires, my, my mates in, in the um, dorm, they would draw on the walls, the, the English beat uh, album cover, somebody drew that and somebody drew Drums and Wires. And I remember coming home some nights and hearing this sort of really trashy drum sound and going, oh God, that's so noisy. What is that? You know, because I was like a, a jazz head, you know? It was um, Black Sea. So they were listening to Drums and Wires on Black Sea. And it wasn't until, it wasn't that I didn't dig it, but I hadn't heard the, the thing that, you know, there's sometimes there's that little switch, you flick it, and then everything else makes sense. Well, I tuned into my college station. I went to Rutgers uh, University in New Jersey. I was studying jazz guitar, actually. I turned on the uh, station one day, and we had this DJ who's very famous now, Matt Pinfield. Uh, he was on MTV 120 Minutes. He's a like, famous personality now, host of things. But he was a very musical guy. And he played Melt the Guns. And I went, who is this? And I waited by the radio and he said, XTC. And I found out it was from English Settlement and that was it. English Settlement just sold me and then everything else came after that. I went back. I went back to Drums and Wires and Black Sea, and they both just spoke to me immediately. I was like, what was I thinking? That I didn't love this right away, you know? But it's often the case, isn't it, with music? You get, as you say, you get a little key. Sometimes you just see a video or you you, you see them live or whatever, Some or, or just a different context that you hear them. You say, oh, you think, I get it. <laughs> and then that can just open up a yeah. whole vista that you didn't know you could see. That happened to me with uh, another great band, the Pixies. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. I had some Pixies records, and I had them on the pile of CDs that were to be brought down to the uh, record store to be sold, you know? <laughs> And they'd give me fifty cents for each CD, <laughs> and I had and uh, the New York Dolls toured with the Pixies, and uh, we opened for them. So I stayed and saw the Pixies set, and I went, "Oh my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen!" And I went back and I listened to the albums I was about to uh, get rid of, and I said, "What was I thinking? <laughs> these these are incredible." Yeah. So XTC did that once you got that uh, melt the guns moment. That's what that sort of like that moment of revelation. Yeah, because, you know, the, the melodies, the lyrics were so smart. The melodies were simple unto themselves, but against the chords, that's the that's the trick. Interesting, weird notes against the chords that, that all were. And I don't know if Andy knows what he's doing. I think he doesn't really. He's just like a savant that way. Because um, we sat down with a guitar before. I've We've only hung out in person once, but... Um, you know, he said, show me that, you know, and I would play something. Hey, what is that? You know, and so he doesn't really know what he's doing, but he knows what he hears. That That's great. So when I heard that 12 string on Melt the Guns at those parts, which is probably Dave Gregory, who I didn't even realize was such an amazing guitar player. But I just assumed, you know, Andy played everything. But now I realize I can sort out the parts. Andy's kind of got that cleaner, angular parts and, and Dave's the more sort of traditional but amazing guitar though. So it was Melt the Guns, it was English Settlement, every song on that record. As you know, I love Nearly Africa and Thugs. Uh, and... Interesting that you just use the word melody because it strikes me that your music, even when it's a sort of four to the floor, uh, strong kind of straightforward rock and roll number, you don't let the melody go. How important is melody to you? Very. You people at home can't see this, but here's just a smattering of, I have hundreds of these. These are C90 cassettes. Cassette tapes full of really cool ideas, you know, really cool riffs. But, you know, if there's not a melody and if there's not a, a lyric that makes sense, it's not a solo. You know, and I, I go through this with people I, I write with. There are some people that argue, well, I was there in the room and I, you know, threw you a chord, I should have credit. I'm like, that's not songwriting. Songwriting is melody, lyrics, and chords, and hopefully all together. I mean, there's nothing worse than a, you know, a great, you know, beat with a, a melody that goes, I mean, 
you know, Motley Crue made a career out of that crap, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, I hate that stuff if it doesn't have a a singable melody. But then again, you know, I come from the Beatles and the the Monkees and the, the great melodic songwriting of the 60s. Yeah, the Beach Boys you mentioned as well. And And the Beach Boys. So you're there sitting on on Zoom with Andy, uh, exchanging ideas. Um, Did the two of you, do the two of you push each other? So, you know, for example, with a melody, um, would Andy say to you, oh, that that melody could go somewhere else? Or or would you say some, you know, something similar to him? Was that, is it on that sort of level of detail or was it more a question of you working on it by yourself? From my memory, a lot of the, uh, you know, because he's Andy, you know, I just, I let him go. I, I just initially asked him, do you want to write my next single? You know, one song. And here we came up with eight, eight songs, you know, uh, six of which are finished. Two are not finished, which I will definitely finish for a, a next record. But uh, five will appear on this record. The the sixth one was a little bit out of the genre. Of, it didn't really fit. I just kind of let, because, you know, He's Andy, and he's uh, somebody I mass- have massive respect for. I uh, just let him, you know, if I didn't like something, I didn't go, yeah, that's great, man. You know, I mean, if I didn't like it, I'd say, well, maybe we could do this on the end. Or, And sometimes I would take the ideas that we would, you know, come up with together. And when I do my demo, I would change a thing here or there. And he wouldn't say anything to me like, hey, you changed my note. I, and I would like explain, uh, yeah, I changed this note on the end or I changed this chord. And he was like, cool. I guess he respected what I did as well. It's weird because on Zoom, you know, there's a sync delay and you can't ever really play together and sing together. You know, it's like you have to kind of take turns. So there wasn't a lot of, uh, well, there was no like playing together, that's for sure. You've mentioned that you've collaborated i mean you've collaborated a lot with lots of other people in lots of different contexts how uh, is each collaboration that you do with another musician does it does each one just sort of take its own shape is it are they all different from each other or or, or was there something um was there some or, and or was there something d- distinctive about working with andy that was different from working with other people yeah i've written with my brother i've written with uh the singer uh, keith brewer from company of wolves to my my Mercury Records band, uh, Rich Jones from uh, the Michael Monroe band. Everyone is a little bit different. You know, sometimes people bring, you know, almost completed songs and I just kind of add my thing to it. Sometimes I bring a almost completed song. Sometimes we just bring a riff in and work it together. It's definitely easiest when somebody's got, you know, already a head start on a, a melody and the lyric idea. The first thing Andy uh, maybe this is the way he likes to write. He he brought in something. Um, wh- I had something as well. I, I said, I'm not going to go to this song, first songwriting session with Andy Partridge empty-handed. Yeah. And actually, the song I brought is the one that's not on the record. <laughs> <laughs> so you you were the weird one. <laughs> no, it, it just sounds a little bit too much like a Todd Rundgren record. But, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and my record's not like that. It, it sounds like an, like an 80s Todd Rundgren thing which is it's cool but it's uh it's a little too mellow so he brought that uh sid barrett sounding thing which is uh it's going to be one of the songs in the album it, it is really cool here's what i was amazed with right with Andy. he brought that first idea which is cool we worked on that and we said okay let's put that on the side what else you got then we did my idea then we put that on the side and he said okay what um what song do you wish you had written and I said, uh, King Midas in Reverse by the Hollies, right? So it was like, ooh. Um, there's, so there's one song called One Last Bell. And, um, well, he started playing something, and he said, it sounds like a bell. We started playing these chords, and Andy's like, it rings, that really rings like a bell. And uh, he's like, something about a bell. So he's like very visual when he writes and he hears something and he gets pictures in his mind and then that becomes the song. It's a completely different way of, of writing than I write. You know, I will I will sing nonsense words until, you know, something in my mouth feels like it belongs and it's not too stupid. <laughs> but he really like 
so he saw this or, or heard, he's very cinematic. And then it's like, okay, so it sounds like a bell. It's about a bell. What about a bell? And, and then we just riffed on all these concepts. And it turns out uh, it's, it's a really cool song about the age of love lies being over. The, the bell is the, the bell of the sound of truth resounding. And it's a very creative way of working, isn't it? Because it means that you, that, that, that you can follow ideas that you might not otherwise have had if you were just doing the moon in June. It's just go, that just goes that, down that same route again. But if you think, well, what can I think about a bell? <laughs> then that opens up a whole vista, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would never say, I would never sit down and say, I'm going to write a song about a bell today. Or even I'm going to write a song about the edge of lies being over today. I wouldn't do that. You know, that's the good thing about writing with other people, especially with Andy, is that uh, they make you think differently. And I can, I can go with it. Sometimes I don't come up with it on my own, but if it's presented, I can go, oh, I can, I can run with that. When I got together with him that one time, me and him in the Stu Row, we went to, we were at the Stu's house. I was in Swindon. When we were chatting on Twitter, Andy somehow found out that I was going to be touring with uh, Michael Monroe and Alice Cooper. We were playing in um, in Swindon, and he's like, "I hear you're coming to my shithole town." Um, <laughs> he goes, "I'll take you to lunch, my treat." And I was like, "What?" Screenshot, you know? I'm like, "Andy Parch is taking me to lunch." Oh my god! All right. So uh, he and Stu picked me up in the parking lot of the, uh, of the arena we were playing that night. And we went to Stu's and, and hung out all day and, you know, had lunch and listened to music and passed guitar back and forth. And uh, at one point I said, show me uh, how you play Scarecrow People. It's the way that he works. He said, I just put my hand down anywhere. And I don't know what that chord is. And I looked at the chord. I went, well, that's a... C sharp, uh, flat nine. I don't know whenever the chord was. I like analyzed it. I said, that's what that chord is. He's like, I don't know. I can just put my hand anywhere. And, and that's, and then I started playing this rhythm. Don't, 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 don't. And he said, sounds like a horse. Right. So this is the same kind of thing with the bell, right? Sounds like a horse. Don't, 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 don't. And he's like, now I'm seeing farms. I'm seeing fields. I'm seeing scarecrows. And, that's how he wrote that. And uh, like, I have tried to get into that way of writing myself. It's very difficult if you, if you haven't been doing it for a long time, but I'm trying to train myself to see. It's a natural thing to him, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Because he's a painter too, you know, and, and an artist. So you've been in the company of some very, very famous people. Even the day that you're talking about, you were on stage with Alice Cooper. <laughs> you know, these are very, very big people. Right. But right. still, you were. Ex it sounds like you were still excited to meet Andy Partridge in in a way that you didn't take it for granted. Totally. And and the thing is, I I don't know if I just get lucky with people, but there have been a lot of people that I've met, like Paul Simon for one, uh, that. You know, people told me, oh, man, he's really hard. You know, he's really difficult to, you know, he'll make you feel this and that. And I did not have that experience. So, and with Andy, um, I don't know anything about his reputation with other people, really. He just made me totally comfortable. Uh, right from the get-go, it was like I was just hanging out with a friend. You know, we, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm with my hero. Like, you know, if all of a sudden Keith Richards walked in the room, it'd be a different story. I'd probably be nervous, but, uh, but also, you know, it was the, the lead up to it. You know, I had, uh, Andy had known about my records and then we had chatted and, you know, so it was, I was already a bit comfortable with him. Yeah. You weren't going in cold from that point of view. And, um, uh, well, t talking about people with reputations, you, you've alluded to it already that your, I think it was the second Dolls album that you worked on was produced by Todd Brungren. Um, Andy has a, has a, a famously didn't get on with Todd Rundgren. Can you can you see Andy's point of view? Why that might have happened? Do you want me to uh, to give you the dirt on Todd Rundgren? Is that, yeah, maybe if you have dirt, <laughs> it depends on whether you, whether you want to work in this town again. <laughs> exactly. Well, I've, I've I've told some some stories. Where, you know, I I don't know if Todd would be mad, but uh, you know, it's what happened. I'm not trash talking. When I met Todd. I was the only one talking to him about this. I said, Todd, what, uh, what's your studio equipment that you have? And he said, well, I'm really kind of in between because we were going to go to Hawaii to record 
with the dolls to, to record the record with Todd. And of course, everybody was excited about going to Hawaii in January in New York, you know, but let's get out of the call. Let's go to Hawaii. So like nobody else even cared about his studio. They were just like, let's go to Hawaii. And I was like, so what do you got, Todd, you know, in your studio? He said, well, I'm really kind of in between things right now. I'm, I don't really have a studio. I'm like, oh boy, where, 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 where are we going to record that? you know? And then he started asking us, you know, guys, bring whatever you you need, you know, bring your amps and bring microphones and bring it. I was like, what? So we ended up uh, recording the album in a, um, well, we were, we started out, we were going to record in his home, in his house, which is an amazing house in Kauai, which one, uh, you, you open the front door and you immediately look, you're outside looking at a mountain. It's incredible. Um, and so when you open the front door, you're, uh, you're in like the kitchen and living room area and it's open to the elements. The, the bedrooms are then on either side and they're enclosed with doors and stuff. But, um, so I said, I go, wow, where are we going to record Todd? He's like, oh, right here in the, in the living room. And I was like, what happens when it rains? And he's like, oh, it never rains here. I was like, never rains in Kauai. And and the next and that night we went to sleep and we woke up in the morning and it was drenched. You know, all the equipment was wet. And so we had to like go rent, you know, and that place would have sounded great because the ceilings were really high and stuff. And uh we had to go and rent like a little ranch um house with low ceilings and shag carpet, you know, and, and um it it ended up being nice because we could look out over the ocean, see whales jumping and but uh you know, we had, um, like a rented, uh, live console was our, um, was our board. And, and he had like a, an expensive version of pro tools. And, you know, I was like, oh, wow. So this is how Todd Rundgren makes records. Uh, but you know, it, of course it's his ears and his musical sensibilities that it kind of doesn't really matter, you know, what, what you use, but I had these like visions of Todd Rundgren, Bearsville, you know, two inch tape and, you know, Neve and tube compressors and, you know, all this great stuff. And there was none of it. There was none of it. Um, he just was kind of flying by the seat of his pants. And that's the philosophy that worked, that has historically worked for him, hasn't it? Cause he, uh, cause he's just about capturing that moment. I guess. I mean, but, uh, you know, I, I kept thinking skylarking, you know, he's going to, He's going to hear our stuff and he's going to like, you know, make medleys and make things go into each other and make things make sense and weave in and out. And there was a lot of that. It was just like, okay, 10 songs, boom, 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 uh, unrelated to each other. And I think he had two suggestions for me on, on the whole record. He's like, don't play this, play that. And I was like, oh, okay. But other than that, you know, he left me alone. Let me do my thing. And, um, I mean, I really, I, I like Todd and I, I like working with him and, you know, I lived at his house for a month basically. And, uh, he's, uh, kind of hard to get to know. Um, doesn't talk a lot. You know, I tried to make some conversation and, you know, went where it went and wasn't like deep, intense, uh, stuff, but you know, the guys done a lot, seen a lot, you know, maybe, uh. He wasn't very interested in what, yeah, what I was yeah. asking him. <laughs> Interesting. But, um, the, um, the, I, I realize I've mentioned, but haven't followed up your connection with Prairie Prince. How, uh, is, is Prairie a guy that you've known for a long time? No. In fact, uh, I had reached out to him on, on the internet a couple of years ago, I think. And I don't remember why. I think I was just telling him that I had hung out with Andy and, you know, we'd listened to, some of the tracks and it was great and blah, blah, blah. But, um, I didn't realize that, you know, he, we knew a lot of the same people like Chasm Sultan from Todd's band and Todd, of course. And, but when I told him, I, I wrote him back and I could see it was in a Facebook messenger and, you know, you can scroll back and see the uh, messages you sent earlier. And, uh, I, I wrote him and I said, Hey Prairie, um, I wrote you a couple of years ago that I had hung out with Andy. Well, now I've written seven songs with him that I want to record for an album and I'd love to have you play. And he called me back right away. <laughs> he was like, he was really into it. And he is the sweetest guy. He's like, 
you know, we talked on the phone and it was an, another guy like that. Yeah. I felt like I'd known my whole life, you know? So it went really well. Um, I flew him to New York. He's stayed with some family here and, uh, you know, did it as affordably as he could for, uh, I was very appreciative to, you know, we did seven songs in two days. We did the five songs I wrote with Andy and, um, two of mine and, um, they sound amazing. He brought the earn enough for us snare. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I said, if you bring anything, bring that snare drum. He's like, oh, it's already packed. <laughs> so, and he used that snare drum on everything that, that we recorded. So, uh, so you appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've just been mixing a, a couple of the songs and uh, other songs that he played on besides this single. And, uh, yeah, so it's fantastic. Mm. And there's a lovely, uh, sort of, it actually reminds me of Terry Chambers on something like ball and chain, the sort of rumbling, uh, drum beat that he's got on, on, on 4th of July. Oh yeah. And you know, a lot of times when I write, I, I'll have drum beats in mind, and you know when I do my demos, I program uh, my fake drummer, you know, to do these things. And um, you know, he ended up. Man, there's some very Terry Chambers kind of uh, ideas that I had that I programmed, and and he loved them. He played them just the way that I, you know, but better, of course. So uh, yeah, you'll hear on a, on a couple of the songs. There's. Uh, some definite XTC isms going on. You're giving yourself time for the album, you've, so you've obviously got the drum tracks laid down, but you're just for, for, the, for the remaining songs. You're not rushing into into releasing them straight away. I'm rushing to get them finished before I leave. For, I leave New York for the summer in about two weeks, and um, I'm trying to get them all finished. Uh, a lot of them are overdubbed on already. I just need to sing them which is the hardest thing. Well, you know, because some, some days the voice doesn't, uh, you know, the fingers always work the same. But some days you wake up and the voice isn't uh, the right for the song you feel like singing that day. Are you running this stuff past Andy or is it entirely in your hands now? This is in my hands. You know, I'll send him a rough mix and I'll go, what do you think? Pretty much the demos that we did are the Bible because it was approved by both of us. And, you know, once we get to the tracks, of course... Things change a little bit, and I, I get an idea. Oh, well, I'm going to put theremin on this, and I'm going to put a real cello on this and a trumpet. You know, some things will change, and, and I'll send it to him and, and say, hey, what do you think of this? And, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, you know, maybe you should have done this or that. And I'll say, well, the, it's too late. The guy's gone already. You know, I, he was in for the session for one day. I, I can't call him back, but. You know, that's the danger of doing that. Uh, but he's been very helpful. I'm, I'm giving him, what do they say? Additional remote production. <laughs> because cause he really did, you know, shape the, the songs and the demos to the point where, you know, that's how I'm recording them. So Great. Well, I, I can't let you go, Steve, without hearing... I know you've told this story probably many times before, and you might be bored telling it, but it's such an amazing story. Tell us the story of playing live on stage with Chuck Berry, founding father of rock and roll. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it was incredible. The first rock show I ever saw, my dad took me to see Chuck Berry when I was 13 at like a rock and roll revival uh, show in Madison Square Garden in, in New York City. And, um, you know, it was the 70s. Everybody was kind of getting on in the years, and it was like Chuck Berry and the Shirelles, and it was like a whole 50s revival thing. But I went for Chuck. And we uh, we hung out outside the uh, the stage door waiting for Chuck to come out afterwards, and and here he comes. He's got his guitar case, and um, he's got a suit jacket on, and and Chuck's like, uh, and my dad's like, hey Chuck, how about an autograph for the kid? And Chuck's like, no, no autographs, no autographs, and he just keeps walking, and I'm walking alongside Chuck Berry, and I stick my hand in his suit jacket pocket, thinking maybe I'll get a pick or a matchbook or anything that I can say. I got this from Chuck Berry. His pocket was empty. <laughs> and uh, so that that's the first time I, you know, quote, met him. And then, um, you know, I went on to uh, learn, you know, every solo that he ever played just about in every, every song. And um, that was my, you know, self-taught rock and roll years was, uh, you know, playing Chuck Berry solos. And those are the first guitar solos that, many people have learned to get them into rock and roll 
And um, then, uh, so flash forward to 19, so that's in the 70s, flash forward to like almost 20 years later, 1988. Um, Chuck is going to do a show at the Meadowlands, which is the big uh, arena out here in New Jersey. And it's a racetrack, <clears throat> horse racetrack. He's going to play uh, at, at Trackside Park, which is the, the racetrack at the Meadowlands. And a friend of ours that we had worked with, my mom's a jazz singer. And that's partially how I grew up to, you know, know all this jazz stuff, you know, playing behind her. And we had played gigs with uh, a trumpet player who was the bugler for the for the racetrack. You know, he did that or whatever before the race horse races start. And he was in charge of all the entertainment there. So when Chuck uh, toured, he would get a pickup band. Uh, and the, the promoter would be in charge of putting that band together. The bugler named Frankie Rendell, he called me up. He said, hey, you, you guys want to play with Chuck Berry? I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, well, I got Chuck coming in, uh, you know, this August. And, uh, you know, he wants a band. So I'm... I'm thinking of putting you and your brother, you know, on, and why don't you bring your blues band, the Hudson River Rats? I said, well, yeah, great, but, uh, you know, we have a harmonica player, a lead singer, who we probably don't need because it's Chuck Berry. So I got the uh, drummer, um, the keyboard player, my brother in bass, and myself on guitar, and uh, we had been watching the Hail, Hail Rock and Roll movie religiously, Anyway, and then when we knew we had the gig, we watched it even more, and we kind of got prepared for, you know, the way Chuck is. And um, so, so we, show, we, uh, we show up at the gig, and we're waiting for Chuck, and uh, the promoter comes in first, and he says, uh, he says uh, yeah, uh, Chuck's at the hotel now, but he's going to come a little while. He says... Um, when I picked him up, he said, who's my band tonight? And uh, I said, the promoter says, I, I told him, oh, Chuck, it's a great band. It's uh, Conti Brothers. It's, uh, John on bass and Steve on guitar. He goes, guitar? I don't use no other guitar player. And uh, Frankie was like, ah, Chuck, don't worry. Steve's really good. He can lay back. Chuck's like, oh, I'll give him one song. And if he ain't happening, I'm going to throw him off the stage. So I was like, I am going to lay way back. So Chuck comes in, you know, the backstage there. We're like, hey, Chuck, we shake hands. We, you know, been fans of your stuff for a long time. And uh, we're really looking forward to playing the, you know, the stuff the way that, you know, that it was originally played. And Chuck's like, no, 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 don't do that. He's like, you guys have been watching that movie. He goes, that was Steve Jordan's idea. Don't do that swing. And I said, we wanted to swing it, you know, like the 50s records. And he's like, no, he's like, bass player if if i do this you know he moves his neck he goes that's how i want you to play and he says drummer watch my foot for the uh, endings and uh guys listen to the lyrics because if it wasn't for the lyrics we'd be playing the same song on my own <laughs> <laughs> and uh so so we get out there and we do i don't know four or five you know chuck classics and i'm like i'm just I made it through the first song. He didn't throw me off the stage. Uh, I laid way back. And then he, the fifth song, he does a slow blues. You know, It Hurts Me Too. You know that song? When things go wrong, go wrong with you, it hurts me too. Slow blues. He says, you know, he sings the last line, then he points to me. Take the solo. Like, wow. <laughs> not only did he not throw me off the stage, he's giving me a solo. So I played the solo, and he yells into the mic, the man can play. Can the man play? Yeah, take another one. <laughs> Gives me another solo. And then uh, then we go, we play, you know, 10 more Chuck classics. Then he does another slow blues, does the same thing. Gives me a solo. Can the man play? Take another one. And then, <laughs> and then at the beginning of Johnny Be Good, which is the first solo I ever learned, he plays the first riff. He goes da 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 da. On the second note, he pops his high E string, and I'm like, all I can think about is, what about the middle? What's going to happen when he gets to that middle section and he doesn't have that string? Because you really, 
you need that string, you know, to do. He would have just gone. It's not the same. Yeah, yeah. He didn't have the high string. So, so I was like, oh my God, I have to prepare myself. What if he, you know, and sure enough, Johnny be good, points to me. And I take the middle, take the solo, and it's like, Amazing. I have it on film. I mean, you can, my face <laughs> is about to crack. The smile is so wide, dude. I'd have just retired at that point. So you could have just get you, you, that, you could have said, right, I'm complete. I've, my life work is done now. Yeah, he's the man. He's, he's the one that we all, uh, you know, I mean, the Beatles, the Stones, I mean, everybody. Every guitar player, you know, and it, yeah, and amazing to have, amazing to have been anywhere close. Never mind playing his so <laughs> It's an amazing story. Yeah, so uh, that was uh, one of the most incredible musical musical experiences of my life. Number two, meeting Andy Partridge, and, and then <laughs> yes, and then the latest is uh, Andy Partridge. So <laughs> it was a nice, nice bookends. Yeah, fantastic bookends. Good luck with Fourth of July. I hope it goes down well, and I hope the album. I'm looking forward to the album when that comes out. It's been great to talk to you. Steve, so enjoy your summer touring around. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Me too, yes. Uh, it's been great talking to you, and, and hopefully uh, I'll have another one of the Conti Partridge songs. He insists that I put my name first, actually. He's like, Partridge Conti just doesn't flow. He's like, my name just gets stuck in the mouth, so, so put my name last. I was like, okay, well, I, you know, I really want to put your name first, Andy. He's like, nope. So... Anyway, hopefully there'll be another Conti Partridge uh, single coming in the fall. Uh, just mixed that one. It's actually one that I, I gave him a title, and he said, oh, I like that. Let's write that one. And, and he just started singing it. It's called Shoot Out the Stars. And uh, he just started singing it right away, a very Andy Partridge melody. I was like, totally full. You know, again, I took it away. I added my stuff. You know, sometimes I, I write bridges to the songs and then I present them I go here here's the you know our verse and chorus and I'm adding this bridge and he's like wow great so he didn't uh he hasn't nixed any of my ideas um, okay well I look forward to that one as well so thank you very much yeah um, great to talk to you thanks Mark what do you call that noise thanks very much Steve Conte who can be found at steveconte.music.com thanks also to Rhubarb and Don Kerr and of course Andy Partridge and thank you once again to everyone who has supported the podcast on Patreon who you can join at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher thanks in particular to the following wonderful Knights in Shining Karma Terry Arnott John Bicknell Kevin Burt Lorenzo Charchi Kale Corbett Liam Duggan Jamie Dunn Jeff Farris Leslie Good Mike Grafe, Robert Graham, Camille Henry, Stu Stephen Hope, <laughs> Alan Hughes, Marek Kraus, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlor, Liz Lynch, Murray Meikle, Yusef Murrah, Jeff Nicholson, Amy Parkinson, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, Nigel Waller, and Martin Whitley. Great to have you all on board and see everybody next time when I'll be with Chris Braid. 